I think we have a tendency to kind of come before God rather rushed. It's easy for us to rush into worshiping God without any concern for what he desires from us in our worship. And ultimately, this is why we do tag time, why we do this every week. I think there's a tendency sometimes for us to, whenever there's something we do, like, repeatedly, we start to kind of, like, we almost kind of, it loses its significance sometimes. And I know that, like, I, I, I explain it every single week, and the reason is, is because I think we should never lose sight of what we're doing here, because when we enter into prayer before we worship, I never want us to come in here on a Tuesday night, play some games, hear some announcements, and then we just rush into worship as if it's, as if it's something casual that we're about to do. That we're not about to stand before a holy God and sing praises to him. I don't want us to ever just rush into that like it's not significant. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 says this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. What Solomon is saying here in, in Ecclesiastes is very serious for us to consider, that we should not be careless in how we approach God in worship. We should not be careless in how we approach God in worship. Before anything, before we even open our mouths, we should seek to ask ourselves this question and ask God, what does God desire from me in worship? What does God desire from me in worship? See, this past weekend, I hit a milestone in my life, right, where I'm now officially old, right? Yeah, I know. I'm now 30. My knees hurt. My back hurts. I don't know what happened, right? So I, I forget to grab my notes. It's crazy. But this past weekend, Kayla had this whole weekend, birthday weekend thing planned for me, and I did not know it. Um, so we, we, it ultimately started on Friday. We drove to my parents' house, uh, and we dropped Carly off at my parents' house at about 3 in the afternoon, and, uh, which, was, which was awesome. They got to have, you know, some time with Carly. She got to have some time with Nana and Paw, and I got to have some time with my wife, right? So we go, we head down to Orlando because Kayla had bought, in, uh, we had bought us two Orlando Magic tickets. So I got to go watch my favorite basketball team. It's, it's okay. Yeah, yeah th thanks. You know what? You're my favorites. All right. Even though you ridiculed my Dallas Cowboys last week, you clapped with me with the Orlando Magic, so we're back to being loved again, okay? All right, anyway, right? So I got to go see my favorite basketball team, and I got to do this with my wife, right? Like, like I, it's hardly ever do we get to just have that time, just us two. So it was really cool to do that. Also, Carly ended up staying the night with my parents, so it was awesome because, like, man, we didn't have to rush home for a babysitter. Like, we could just, like, man, it was just, it was really, really cool. So then Saturday, I got to sleep in a little bit, and then we go to pick up. Carly, and little did I know that Kayla had planned for all of these people to be at my parents' house uh, to, as like a surprise party for me, and it was, it was my family, and uh, so my parents, my siblings, the, their spouses, my grandparents, and, and all of our really, really close friends that are basically family at this point. Right? And it was, it was really, really cool to have this entire experience for us to do this, and, and the question is, uh, why do I tell you this? Because in my mind, Kayla had put together the absolutely, just the, the perfect birthday weekend for me. I got to do, like, everything I would have wanted. I got to 
enjoy my favorite basketball team. I got to I got to spend time with my wife, not without concern for rushing back. I got to spend time with my family and my friends. See, everything that I wanted, Kayla made happen. And she didn't even I, she didn't have to ask me. She just knew. And why does she do this? Why does she make this whole weekend for me? Because in Kayla's mind, this past weekend was about me. It was about what I wanted. And the only thing on her mind was, what does my husband want? Guys, I want you to know something. That when it comes to worship, the only thing that should be on our minds is, what does my God want? What does God want from me? Tonight, as we look at this passage, we're going to see three things that I believe makes clear that God wants from us in worship. So if you have your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12, if you would stand with me, get some calisthenics in tonight. I know it's still, it's only 7.20. We're good. We're still alive, right? So chapter 6, starting at verse 12, says this, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark, of, uh, the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel bought, uh, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Michal or Michael, I don't know how to spell I don't want to say Michael because that's my name. It feels weird. So Michal, there we go. Uh, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house, and David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out and to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' his female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be based in your eyes. But by, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for tonight. We ask that, Father, uh, your word would be made clear to us tonight, that we would grow in our understanding of you, uh, and that, Father, you would draw us closer to yourself. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So like I said, there are three things. I believe there's three things that this passage shows us about what God desires from us in worship. The first thing is this, is that our worship should be scripturally sound. Scripturally sound, verse 12, and it, it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. All right, we immediately start off. We see the ark was taken to the household of Obed-Edom. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was my boy Obed, I would not necessarily feel super comfortable about this, right? Why? Because the last person who just touched the ark died, 
And now they're like, hey, we're going to bring it to your house. Is that cool? I'd be like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know. Like, just, just give me, let me think about it, right? However, what we see is not that God's presence brought judgment to Obed-Edom and his household, but rather God brought blessings to him. This is just a side note, but I think it's important for us to know this, is that it's important that, to note that God desires to bless his people. Right, that God's not out here seeking to find ways to bring judgment on his people. Ezekiel 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Ezekiel 33.11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. See, when God's holiness is properly respected and his word is obeyed, what we see is that God blessed his people. But we see that the ark, right, we see that the ark stays here for three months. Now, the question can be asked, what was David doing during these three months? Was he simply just trying to wait until it wasn't awkward anymore? Did he forget about the ark? Like, what exactly is going on? I think First Chronicles, so First Chronicles kind of tells this story, but it tells it with a little bit extra detail. I think it gives us a little bit of insight here. So First Chronicles 15, 1 through 2 says this. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark excuse me, for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and minister to him forever. Skip down verses 13 through 15. He says, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So if you were not with us last week, ultimately what happens is they try to usher in the ark on a cart. They put it on an ox cart. The problem with that is that God, in his word, had made it very, very clear that the ark was only to be transported by the priests carrying it by the poles that were, given, that were made for it. Right? And because, of, because they did not consider God as holy enough to be carried correctly, that they tried to, now they put it on a new cart, but still, they put it on a cart. Ultimately, what happens is it leads to the death of Uzzah because of an improper respect for God's holiness. And what we see is that David, now three months later, understands what the problem was, and he tells them, hey, we're going to do it. We're going to do it this way, in this manner. You're going to do this. You're going to carry it, because that's how we're supposed to do it. And he basically explains all of these two things to them. So while we may not be certain about what happened during those three months, one thing is for sure. David clearly had consulted God and his word to see what God wanted when it came to worship and transporting the ark. Do you see that? Clearly, David has done some work to figure out what does God want. Because clearly, it wasn't what I thought. See, all the issues that we addressed last week, David corrected. David corrected them this time around. You see, we're very prone to make the same mistake the people of Israel did when we consider our worship. Here's what we tend to do when we worship God. We tend to think about the things that we like, and we offer the best version of what we like to God, and we hope that it's acceptable to him. Just like you know, we saw last week that Israel put the ark on a cart. They put it on a cart, but we see... Now, of course, it was a new cart. So, hey, they wanted to put it on a cart, but they're like, hey, we're not just going to put this on any cart. Let's build a new cart for it. 
What did they do? They took what they thought was right, and they made a better version of it and thought that it would be acceptable to God. You see, what I've found is often the case is this, is that we find ourselves consumed very much with things that God really doesn't care about. We find ourselves consumed with things that God isn't very concerned with, and we give very little consideration to the things that God is concerned with. For instance, David tells the priests who are going to carry the ark to consecrate themselves. Now, not concentrate themselves, consecrate themselves. Ultimately, just to kind of give a brief synopsis of what this means, right? To consecrate themselves means that they were, to, they were going to take a period of time where the priests would cleanse themselves and they would prepare themselves mentally and spiritually for what was about to happen. Why? Because David knows that what God wants is not just external actions. What God wants from you is not just external actions. It's not just for you to raise your hands and sing the songs in the proper key. What God wants for you is not just external actions. What God wants is not just the outside. It's the inside. It's the internal. Right? He wants the person doing the actions to be right. God is not so much interested if your outward actions are right, which to an extent, yes. But what he wants mainly is for you to be right as you do them. Does this make sense? See, if these men were going to carry the ark, they needed to be in the right place spiritually before doing so. Likewise, we put a lot of emphasis on external things. But have you considered your heart when you worship? Not whether you raise your hands or close your eyes. Not whether you sing the songs well or you can play the instruments or, or even if you know the words. Have you considered, is your heart right before singing to him? Perhaps you could sing with the best of them. Perhaps you are, man, you just, you, you got it like that. But have you considered that the animosity that you have with another Christian in this room can make it to where you're not ready to worship no matter how well you can sing that if you have problems with another pro I, I'm, I'm not being like hypothetical I'm being real and you probably know what I'm talking about if you have problems with someone else in this room and you have not begun to address them let me tell you I don't care how beautifully you can sing you're not ready to worship you're not 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic words or prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. You see, when you read scripture, you find the common theme that God is far more concerned with the internal part of worship than the external part of worship. This doesn't mean that he doesn't care about what happens externally, but it means that we should never emphasize the outside over the inside. This is why it's so important for us to understand that when we worship, it's not our ability or our expressions that make us acceptable. It's because we worship in Jesus' name that makes our worship acceptable. 
That's what we mean. When we talk about worshiping in Jesus' name, what this means is this, is that the only way I could come to God and worship is if I understand that it's because of Jesus that I have the right to do so. And because Jesus is accepted in God's sight, I am accepted in God's sight, and my worship is accepted in God's sight. But if I attempt to worship God apart from Jesus, then my worship and myself are not acceptable in his sight. See, when we read God's word, it should be for the purpose of getting to know him. And as we gain a proper knowledge of him, as, it, as shown in scripture, that we're better able to worship him in a manner that he desires. We do this because we love him. We do this because we love God. And if you love God, you will want to worship him well. So the first thing we see is that our worship should be scripturally sound. The second thing we see is that our worship should be sincerely genuine. Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with, the shout, with shouting and with the sound of the horn. See, as the ark enters into Jerusalem, we, speak, we see the, sp the spectacle ramp up again. If you remember last week, we saw the, the spectacle that was going on and, and how we saw that the problem wasn't the spectacle. The problem was the hearts of the people who were in, in the spectacle. But now that we've corrected that, now we've corrected all the things that we've done wrong, now we are actually ready to ramp the party back up, get ready, and we're going to be shouting with joy. See, the people are shouting with joy. They're playing instruments, and there's a celebration of the highest degree. We see that in this passage... What does it say? It's that David danced before the Lord. That phrase, before the Lord, is important. So if you take note, like take note of that word, before the Lord. If you have your Bible, like underline it or highlight it. Or, or if you're taking notes, write down, like before the Lord. See, when Scripture says that David danced before the Lord, it means that it was not for the spectacle of other people. It was not for what other people would think. It was personal between David and God. It was between just him and God. It wasn't coordinated dance moves, right? He wasn't doing, you know, like the Cupid shuffle. He didn't have other people doing it with him, and they were like, oh, right? No. It was David responding spontaneously the only way that he could. It was as if no one else was present. It was as if, if you just close your eyes, if, as, if, as if it was just, just David and God. And David did what came natural in the moment. I just, I just picture the scene, right? All the people are rejoicing. David is dancing. It's a pure expression of joy, not something that is prescribed from the stage, but something that emerges from within. See, one thing that's evident here is that David's reaction to the presence of God being ushered in is natural, and it's unforced. It's the natural overflow of joy that he has in the Lord. And this is what our worship should be. It should be genuine. It should be natural. One thing that I desire for you and for myself is if we can experience this level of authenticity in our worship. Not meaning necessarily that we dance up and down the aisles, but that we can have a, a genuineness that we just simply respond as God leads us to respond. That we wouldn't worry about this person or that person. We wouldn't worry about raising our hands or putting our hands down or opening our eyes or closing our eyes. That we would just worship God. Right? We aren't 
raising our hands because it's what other people are doing. We aren't looking to our left or to our right so that we can seek to fit in with the crowds. But when you close your eyes, it's just you and Jesus. And I say, as long as your worship is biblical, I want you you express it as God leads you to express it. As long as it falls within the boundaries of Scripture, and it's not distracting to others, man, worship as God leads you to worship. Sometimes there's, there's moments for me where I just, I simply need to sit down. I just sit down. I read the lyrics. Maybe I sit down and I just, I close my eyes and I listen to them. Sometimes I need to stand up, I need to clap. I need to raise my hands. Please hear this from me. When we worship in this place, I don't know about everyone else. I don't know what everyone else does outside of here. But when we get into this place on Tuesday nights, even Sunday mornings, we get ready to worship. What we should do, we should do so first, submitting to God's word. Second, submitting to the Holy Spirit and and his direction and how he wants us to worship him. Does this make sense? See a lot of people kind of like talking to each other. I want like 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 pay attention. Are you with me? See, I think what has happened for many people is that the Holy Spirit takes a back seat in our worship. The Holy Spirit takes somewhat of a back seat in our worship, and we attempt to make up for his absence by emotionally manipulating ourselves. Or just by simply going through the motions of what, of what we see other people doing. Because the Holy Spirit is not present in our personal worship, we try to fake it till we make it. And you know that if this is you. You know if this is you. Understand this. If you need to sit, then sit. If you need to stand and clap, then stand and clap. If you need to step aside, away from others, if you need to move to the back of the room so that you could just be alone, just you and Jesus, then do it. But let your worship be genuine. Let it be authentic. Don't let it be forced. David's worship to God here is inherently emotional. Now, there's an important link between our emotions and our worship. First things first, I want you to see this. That our emotions should never be re- suppressed in our worship. Our worship to God should be genuine, should be authentic. If you feel the need to raise your hands, or if, you, if you feel the need to, to, to cry, if you feel the need to, uh, let, to be emotional in your worship, then don't suppress that. Be biblical and be authentic. You ever be with someone and you can just tell when they're being fake. You can just tell. Maybe no one, and maybe it even drives you crazy because no one else can tell, but you can tell. And it drives you crazy, doesn't it? But then at the same time, we think it's acceptable for us to be fake when we worship God. Why is that? Why is it that the thing that we can't stand when people do it to us, we so readily do it to God? I want you to understand that we should never suppress our emotions 
We should never, hmm, I am spiritual. Right? I know these people may be emotional, and that's wonderful. But I am, I'm a man of, of, of high class, and I don't, I don't do that. What we do is we, we, we emotionally suppress things so that we can have an appearance of religiosity. But I want you to understand that an emotionally unattached Christian is just as unhealthy as an emotionally manipulated one. The second thing we need to see is this, that our emotions should never be manipulated and they should never be the center of our worship. I want to be very clear. Sometimes you won't be emotional in your worship. Sometimes you simply worship God out of obedience. And you may not feel like it. And you're like, man, I had a, had a cruddy day today. I'm not feeling this. But you know what? Sometimes you just do it. And here's the thing. If you don't get emotionally worked up, don't think that you're less of a Christian. Right? But don't think you have, to, um, you have to try and work yourself up so that your worship can be acceptable to God. That's not true. Don't, see, don't think that worship is only genuine if you cry. See, sometimes it can be hard to remove the distractions and focus on what God has called you to focus on. But please hear me. Worship is not always emotional, but it is always spiritual. I'll say it again. Worship is not always emotional, but it is always spiritual. Do not confuse the two. So we saw the first thing is that our worship should be scripturally sound. The second thing we see is that it should be sincerely genuine. And the last thing is this, is that our worship should be shame-free. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, you will notice that Michal is identified as the daughter of King Saul. If you remember way back in 1 Samuel, that Michal is the daughter of Saul who David marries. Right? David marries Michal, and there's a whole lot of things that go on there. Quick Bible trivia, if everyone asks you, when was the last time we see an instance of McCall standing by the window? It's when she actually lets David out the window as he's running from Saul. Here we see her again at the window, but rather than her love for David being expressed, now she's despising him. Why is this? She sees the way that David is worshiping and dancing, and she despises him. Why? Why? What is so bad about what David is doing here? Well, notice how the passage says he danced. It says that he danced wearing a linen ephod. Now, there's, there's a lot of confusion that some people have. A lot of people say that, you've heard people say, like, David danced naked before the Lord and stuff like that. No, he did not. There's nothing indecent about what David did here. He's wearing a linen ephod. If you go to 1 Chronicles 15, you'll see that he was, basically what it means is he was dressed just like everyone else. That he had taken off his royal robes. And he was not worshiping as King David. He was worshiping as David. He had taken off his royal robes and he was dressed just like everyone else in the procession. Perhaps Perhaps what, what, what we're seeing here is David is humbling himself. 
What's happening is this. David has discarded his robes, his royal robes, and worshiped alongside the others, not as a king, but as a fellow worshiper. He isn't before the people as King David. Rather, he's humbling himself as just another man worshiping God. And ultimately, this is what McCall has a problem with. She doesn't have a problem that he dances. She doesn't have a problem that she worships God. She has a problem that he humbled himself in doing so. Yet she had a problem with how he does it. And the passage goes on, and we see that David is serving, and he's ministering to the people all day long. And then, as the day comes to a close, he comes home ready to bless his family, ready to bless his household. He's probably walking in like, man, what a day. Man, I've seen God do such amazing things today. I can't wait to get home. I can't wait to share this with my family. And he walks in, and she's like, she goes, wow, you really made a scene today. Wow, you really made yourself look good, didn't you? Verse 20 says, and David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today. You'd almost sense the sarcasm. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of of his, fe- of his servants' servants' female servants, as one of, of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She doesn't say hi. She doesn't say, how was your day? She opens sarcastically with, well, you sure made a spectacle today, didn't you? Notice the focus of her complaint. It isn't that he worshiped. It isn't even that he danced. Her problem is that he removed his robes. His problem is that he removed his royal robes and he allowed the servants to see him in an undignified manner. She mentions the servants' female servants. At this time, this is basically saying these are the lowest servants. You allowed the lowest of the low to see you like that? How embarrassing. Not even your servants. Your servants' servants. Remember, she's the daughter of a king. She's the daughter of King Saul. And she says, look, I know how a king is supposed to act, and that's not it. I don't know what you think's going on here, David, but I know how a king is supposed to act. He's supposed to act dignified, and you know what? That's not how a king's supposed to act. And you see, what David did was very humbling. It was unthinkable that a king would throw off his garments and worship just like a common man. But what is so amazing is that when you worship God, this is for all of us, not just for David, but when you worship God, we are all on equal footing. We may have different things, statuses in the eyes of the world, but the ground is level at the foot of the cross. When we come to worship God, there are no kings, there are no servants, there are no greaters, and there are no lessers. It is just God and his people. That's it. But the people on the platform, they are just, they're just worshiping with you. And David understood that. Now imagine being David. You joyfully worshiped all day. Man, you just had an awesome day, only to come home and not be able to share this joy with the person that matters the most. Now, this is not the point of this passage, but it's important to make this point. I want everyone to just look at me. Do not date or marry 
anyone who cannot worship with you. You with me? Do not date or worship anyone who will not worship God with you. David responds pretty incredibly. David said to McCall, it was before the Lord. He's like, you have a problem with the way that I acted? That's fine, because I didn't do it for you anyway. It was between me and God. Who chose me above your father. I feel like that was just kind of like a, right? It's like, fine, you can say what you want, but God chose me before your dad. And above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel. Not king over Israel. Notice that. Prince over Israel. Why? There's, there's, this humility is evident. That God's the king over Israel. David's like, I'm just prince. And I will celebrate before the Lord. Verse 22. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. Probably a better translation of that is abased in my eyes. Meaning this. If you don't think, if you think that's bad, I'm going to be even probably even more contemptible to you. I'm probably even more disliked by you. Because I have to humble myself even more. Kind of like what John the Baptist says in John 3.30, right? He must become greater, I must become less. He says it's before the Lord, meaning this, you didn't like the way that I worship today. That's okay because it was for God. It wasn't for you. Also, it was God, not, it was for God, not for the people. You see, David had absolutely zero shame in his worship, and that's what we're trying to get at, is zero shame because he could worship God with absolute freedom, absolute liberty, knowing it doesn't matter what the person before me, behind me, left or right of me thinks. It doesn't matter what the people who mean the most to me think, is that I am worshiping God, and there is freedom in that, total freedom. And I wonder how many of us in this room miss out on this level of freedom in our worship because we're so consumed with what other people think. Think about it. How many times during your worship do you think about what the person next to you thinks about the way you sound? Or you raise your hands and like, oh man, I hope this doesn't look weird. Or you're like, man, I just want to close my eyes and, and pray, but I feel like if people see me praying and not singing, they may think less of me. I'll be honest with you. I feel this whenever I go visit another church. Right, if I go to go on vacation and just me thing, you know, whenever I go on vacation, I still go to church when, wherever I'm at because I take a vacation, but I don't take vacations from Jesus. So I go to church. There's part of me that feels a little self-conscious because I walk in and, and people are like, oh, it's a first-time guest. How are you? Blah, blah, blah. And like part of me wants to be like, hey, like, like I appreciate Like I'm a pastor, you know, like I, you know, cause I feel, and I feel this self-conscious like, do they think that I'm like, you know, lost, you know? Do they think that they need to share the gospel with me and get me saved, you know? Like, I mean, hey, man, like we're on the same team. Like I appreciate it, but like, you know, why? Why do I care? Why do I care? Why do I care? I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I should be able to walk in with total freedom and worship God however I feel like it. Not concerned with what other people think about me. 
I think that many of us don't worship genuinely because we cannot worship shame-free because we care so much about what other people think of us. Now, I want to be clear. This is not a justification to do whatever you want in worship. This doesn't mean that, you know, what, what I feel God doing, calling me to do is to come up on the stage and flop like a fish. No. It's not an excuse to just do whatever you want. David's dancing was appropriate given the context and the setting. And it was without boundaries of scripture. Uh, sorry, and it was within the boundaries of scripture, so he worshiped with a clear conscience. Last week, I want us to, to as we kind of come to a close, last week, we asked this question. Do I tremble at the thought of displeasing God? This week, I ask this question. Do I rejoice unashamedly in a manner that, that is not only noticeable, but also may be the occasion of disapproval by my family and friends? Last week, do I tremble at the thought of displeasing God? This week is do I rejoice in such a way that it may be the reason that people disapprove of me? David says he will continue to humble himself. And that's what happens when you have a proper view of God. You can't get more humble. But this humility is not shameful. I want you to understand. It's a humility that allows you to lift your head high. It's a famous quote, right? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. This is a humility that allows you to still keep your chin up. But there's another way that we can worship without shame. It's because we're not ashamed of our sins. Not just ashamed of what other people think, but how can I worship God without being ashamed of what he thinks of me? If you go back to verse 13, we see this. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Notice that they had just started out, and they offered this sacrifice. They offer a sacrifice. Why? Most likely it was an atonement sacrifice because of their sins previously. They offer these sacrifices. Some scholars will actually say that every six or seven, every seven steps they would, they would offer another sacrifice. Now, I don't see anything in the text that would, that would lend itself to that, but the, the, but the thought is still clear. that there is, This is still a, a very big thing for them to do. Why? Because they want to be able to worship God with a clear conscience, so they offer a sacrifice. They have to repeatedly offer the sacrifice. So that when they continued in worship, they could do so without shame. Now, obviously, we're not sacrificed. We don't have tag time, and then we say, okay, now we're going to offer a sacrifice. No, we don't do that. Why? Because when we go to God in worship, we present the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and because he rose from the dead three days later, signifying that his sacrifice was acceptable in God's sight, I don't go to God presenting myself. I go to God presenting Jesus and knowing that because God accepts Jesus, he can accept me. 